0: All right, our God was and is and is to come. Amen, church? That's the great news of the gospel. Jesus Christ reigns today. He's here with us right now. My prayer would be every time you come on Sunday morning, you're coming to worship the Lord and focus on Him, connecting with other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, lifting up Jesus Christ. It's the best thing we can do, knowing that He's here with us. He's changed your life, that you bow before Him and you worship Him. And that there's a communion that you have with him throughout the week. Knowing that he lives inside of you. Our God lives within us. That we are the temple of God. That's the amazing result of the cross of Christ. When the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, exactly. We can come into the presence of the Lord and cry, Abba, Father. It's an awesome thing. You know, behind me are a whole bunch of uh, Christmas boxes, Operation Christmas Child. And uh, we are going to be sending them out this week, but there's still time to bring them in. So if you haven't brought yours in yet, please do that. We're going to be closing down that kind of whole operation because we've got to send them off to the processing center. Then they get sent all around the world to kids who receive these gifts. And the good news of Jesus Christ is part of that process. We love this uh, operation here at Riverview Church. So it's not too late to bring in a box. And we'd love to have you do that. But I'm going to pray over these boxes because they're going to be sent all over the world and they'll be taken out, I think it's tomorrow morning, and brought to the processing center so that they can get on their way. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, I thank you for who you are. Lord, I thank you for these boxes behind me. Thank you that, that you have brought good news to this world. And I thank you, Lord, that we can be part of the process of bringing Good news to kids around the world, Lord, I pray that these boxes would change the hearts and lives of people. And so, Lord, we commit these boxes to you and the many others that will be sent around the world to proclaim your good news. Lord, I pray for our time this morning. May our hearts be ready, Lord, to receive your word. Thank you for what you've done in our lives. Thank you for the change you have made in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, we're in a series entitled Ordinary Superheroes of the Old Testament. We're looking at the chronological history of the story of redemption. It's your story, by the way. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are the product of this story. And my hope is that we'll have a good understanding of the chronology of the major people in the Old Testament that are a part of this awesome redemption story. We began with Adam and Eve in the very beginning, how they fell into sin. And how God already had a plan that the seed of the woman would one day, what? Crush the head of the serpent. Ultimate victory over sin. We talked about Abel offering an offering of faith to God. We talked about Noah obeying God when it was difficult, building this massive ark when the judgment of God would come on a very sinful world. We talked about the Tower of Babel and the confusing of the languages. And the various nations were formed out of that. We talked for two weeks about Abraham, his failure of faith and his victory of faith in his life. We spoke about Isaac being a person who loved peace. He was a person of peace and how we too are to love peace. And then Jacob, how he last week was wrestling with God. And God was in essence saying to him, Jacob, you've been wrestling with God your entire life. You need to move beyond it. Begin to walk by faith. Your arms are way too short to be in a boxing match with God. And today we're going to talk about Joseph. Joseph is an amazing story in the Old Testament. In fact, I spent uh, a few weeks in the summer talking about Joseph and the lessons about forgiveness that we can learn from Joseph. So I'm not going to talk about that again. I'm going to highlight another aspect of the story of Joseph that is so important. And it's all about this, testing true repentance. You know, the word repent kind of has a bad rap in our culture. You don't want to use that word because people perceive it to be this archaic term. But it really is a wonderfully positive word. And it's an important part of coming to Christ. It's an important part of putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It's mentioned again and again throughout Scripture. We shouldn't be afraid of the concept of repentance. In fact, it's a necessary component of the story of salvation. Bottom line of our talk today is this. True repentance is an essential component of coming to faith in Christ and living for Him. The concept of repentance highlights the fact that believers are to turn from their old life And fulfill God's desire to become a new creation in Christ. See, when you come to Jesus Christ, the Bible says you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. What has come? New things have come, right? You are a new creation in Christ. If you want to look at some of the miracles of God in this world, you don't have to look any further than your own testimony of what God has done in your life. He took you from someone who had no hope. You were hopeless and helpless. And he turned you into a person that's adopted into the family of God. That you have this amazing future in Jesus Christ and it's real. One day you will come to the end of your life. And after this life is over, you move into eternal life. It's real, my friends. And to come to Jesus Christ is the most important decision of your life. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44. Genesis 44, and uh, we're going to be looking at the test of repentance that Joseph did on his brothers. Had they changed? Now, you probably know the story of Joseph. Like I said before, we did a, a series on Joseph in the summer. Joseph was loved by his father. In fact, Jacob had 12 sons, but he loved one the most, and that son was Joseph. Any idea why he loved Joseph the most? Right, he was the oldest son of the wife that he loved the most, Rachel. So when Joseph was born, Jacob loved Joseph. He gave him this amazing gift. It was a coat of what? Many colors, exactly. And you can imagine how that went over with the brothers, right? Joseph wearing this beautiful coat of many colors, reminding the 11 other brothers of the fact that they were second-class citizens in the family of Jacob. It didn't go over well. And for that reason, they hated Joseph. And Joseph was living in Israel uh, under the love and protection of his father. But one day, he was sold into slavery by his own brothers, who had thought about killing him, by the way. That's how much they hated Joseph. He was sent to Egypt. And the brothers thought they would never hear of Joseph again, but they were wrong. God had given Joseph these amazing dreams, a dream which said, Hey, brothers, we were out in the field. And you were gathering up your sheaves and I was gathering up mine and your 11 sheaves bowed down to mine. Well, again, that went over really big with the brothers, right? What are you saying, Joseph? That we're going to bow down to you? Are you kidding me, Joseph? We hate you. We want to kill you. These dreams did not seem to ring true to the family, to the brothers. But God would fulfill these amazing dreams In a miraculous way, as he was sold into the household of Potiphar in Egypt. In fact, let me walk through the timeline of Joseph. Joseph was sold into slavery at the age of 17. He was a slave in Egypt for 10 years. Falsely accused, he goes to prison. In prison, anywhere from 3 to 5 years. But then finally, at the age of 30, an amazing thing happens. The former cupbearer of the Pharaoh, who was in prison, was told by Joseph that your dream means you're going to be restored to the position of cupbearer for the Pharaoh. When the cupbearer left prison, Joseph said to him, Remember me when you come back to Pharaoh. But he didn't. Joseph would be in prison for another two years until finally Pharaoh had dreams that he could not understand, but he knew they had significance. And the cupbearer said to Pharaoh, there's a guy in prison who can interpret dreams. Pharaoh said, get him. Have him stand before me. And the slave who was in prison stood before Pharaoh and interpreted the dreams as this. Pharaoh, for seven years, the land of Egypt will have plenty. But then seven years after that, there will be poverty. Your job, O Pharaoh, will be to store up enough food during the seven years of plenty to make it through the seven years of poverty. The most powerful man on earth turns to this slave, a fugitive, and says, what better man do I have? To place in charge of that task, than you, Joseph, I will make you second in command in all of Egypt. We know that Joseph was at least thirty-seven years old when finally he was reunited with his brothers. His brothers came down from Israel to buy food because they were starving. And they stood before this young ruler in Egypt, not knowing it was the same brother that they hated, that they sold into slavery, and that God had raised up. See, the story of Joseph is this continuous downward slide until God elevates him. Things kept getting worse for Joseph in Egypt until God elevated him to be second in command. It's a wonderful lesson for us to know that God is sovereign, that we need to keep being faithful like Joseph was in the midst of his life. He remained faithful through it all. And in the process of reuniting, I can't read the whole thing because it takes up a number of different chapters, but let me highlight what happens. Ten brothers go down to Egypt to get food. We see that in chapter 42. These ten brothers bow before Joseph. The dream is fulfilled The brothers bow before him. Then they finally bring the younger brother that was left behind back because Joseph recognizes his brothers. He could have said the word and had them killed. And he asked them, tell me your story. I think you're spies. They said, actually, we're 12 sons, but there's only 10 of you. Yes, the younger one is at home. I think you're spies. Unless you bring that younger one back, I'm not going to believe you. So they're told to bring the younger one back. They spent three days in jail in Egypt. And I love what happens when they're in jail. In chapter 42, it says this, and they, they were in jail, and they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come on, upon us. And Reuben, one of the brothers... Answered them, did I not tell you? Don't you love when somebody says that? I told you so. I told you. Did I not tell you to not sin against the boy, but you did not listen? So now there comes a time of reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, (laughs) for there was an interpreter between them. See, when you read the commentary on this, commentators will tell you Joseph was testing the heart of his brothers. He wanted to see if they had truly repented from their sin. He keeps Simeon in jail and allows the other nine brothers to go back to Israel so they can bring their youngest brother back. They begin to see this as God's judgment against them. When they return to Jacob, they realize that the money they had brought down to Egypt to buy the food was back in their sacks. They had no idea how that happened. When the grain was gone, Jacob finally relents and says, okay, we'll let the youngest son, Benjamin, go down to Egypt to prove to this man that our story is true and to get more food because we're starving here in Israel. When they return, they mention to the servant of Joseph, hey, all this money was put back in our sacks. Here's the money that was put back in our sacks and we have more to buy more food. servant tells these brothers, God has put the treasure back in your sacks. God is watching over you. See, it's all part of God's plan. Then Joseph does this. After they buy more food and they have time with Joseph, Joseph puts a cup in the bag of Benjamin as they leave, along with the food that he was given. When they leave, the servants of Joseph go out to the brothers and stop them and say, one of you stole the cup from the person who was so kind to you, which was Joseph. You've stolen from him. How dare you do that? And they're like, well, none of us have stolen anything. Whoever is holding the cup, if you find it, will become the servant of Joseph for the rest of his life. Well, they return to, to, to Joseph and find out that the cup was in Benjamin's sack. But they can't leave Benjamin. They can't leave Benjamin. They know that if they leave Benjamin, the other son of Rachel, the wife that Jacob loved, Jacob will die in sorrow. So Judah offers himself to take the punishment for Benjamin and stay. When Joseph hears it, he breaks down and he weeps knowing that Judah, one of the brothers, one of the lead brothers who sold him into slavery, would now offer himself as a servant for the rest of his life to protect the younger brother and protect the heart of his father. See, it was this amazing test of repentance. And my friends... Repentance is so vital in our lives as well as we come to faith in Christ. Here's the first thing I see in the text and in this story. True repentance comes from a foundational understanding that choices have consequences. You know, when you repent from something, it means you turn from it. That implies that you know that this choice of disobeying God has consequences, I tell people all the time, hey, you have the right to reject Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you, that choice has consequences. There are consequences to that choice. And by the way, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have choices every day to follow God or not. We're we're to remember those choices have consequences. You might say, well, Mel, I've been doing this sin for two years. There hasn't been one consequence for it. Not yet. Not yet. And by the way, there probably have been consequences that you don't even realize. You know, I've often said this, if you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. You choose to rebel against God, you're choosing a path of suffering and hurt and pain. I define repentance as, as this. You know, it comes from the Greek word metanoia. Metanoia, which means literally a change of the mind. It's not enough just to say I'm going to change my activities. It's a changing of the way you think. As God renews your mind and changes your mind. It's a 180-degree turn. You're walking this way in the path of the sin that you're involved in, and you have a repentant heart, a repentant mind, and you do a 180, and now you're moving toward God, and you're following Him. You're leaving that behind. You're not living in two worlds. You're not sitting on the fence. Sitting on the fence hurts, amen? It hurts. It's not an easy thing. And sadly, repentance has gotten a bad rap in our culture today, even in churches. Here's how I like to define repentance, positive life change. Every time you hear the word repent, it's all about positive life change. I'm not going to follow this path, which leads to hurt and suffering and destruction. I'm going to change, positive life change. Because God created me, I have a faith that says His word has the plan for me. I will buy into the wisdom of God's plan. I will follow God. I will follow His will. In Genesis 42, we just read it, right? Reuben, we are guilty. We're guilty for what we have done. Our choice has consequences. It didn't happen for more than 20 years, but you can tell in the text, this was on the minds and hearts of the brothers. The first thing that comes to their mind, this is a consequence of what we did 20 plus years ago. That's how sin is, isn't it? It's always there plaguing you. It's like a cloud above your head. You can't get away from it. It's this ongoing conviction that what you're doing is not according to the word of God. We claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, yet we're allowing the sin into our lives, and we haven't changed. We haven't changed. He goes on and says, as Reuben does, did I not tell you? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. There are a number of facets of, salve, of repentance. Okay? One is at salvation. I call it legal forgiveness, when we are forgiven for all of our sins, past, present, and future. We repent. We come to faith in Christ. We believe that he died on the cross for our sins. We're set free from the penalty of sin. Jesus has set us free. There's joy in that. We realize that this is the God that created us, who died on the cross for us. We want to be like him. So there's a repentance. I had one... Uh, pastor, when I was at my church in Illinois, he came to me and said, hey, Mel, you guys talk about the Lordship of Christ. That's a work salvation. I said, no, it's not. It has nothing to do with works. What it does is says this, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you acknowledge he's worthy to be followed, that you make him the Lord of your life. It's like when you get hired by an employer and the employer says to you, if I hire you, will you follow my direction? And you say, yes, I will. He doesn't have to pay you for that. It's not a work. It's an acknowledgement that Jesus is worthy to be followed. When he wipes away your sin and makes your life as white as snow, you come to him and say, Lord, I want to be like you. You've forgiven me everything, past, present, and future sins, even the sins I don't remember, even the sins I've never confessed in my life. You've forgiven me by the death that you accomplished on the cross and your resurrection. Acts 319, in the early church, it said this Repent therefore and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. It's part of the whole faith process. It's turning away from the old life, following the new life. That if there's a faith in your life that saves you, it's a faith that's strong enough to change you. That's the process of salvation. At that moment, you are adopted into the family of God, but then this growth process occurs, really referred to as sanctification, the process of becoming more holy. Here's another verse in the early church. God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. It's a wonderful, positive life change. Finally, you know what the plan of your life is and you'll turn and follow that plan because you love Jesus Christ. Friday night, my uh, 12-year-old son, who's, by the way, he's turned 13 today. I I just remembered. Today's his birthday. I was up way, way before he was up, so I didn't get a chance. I kind of hugged him last night and said, happy birthday almost. I'll be gone in the morning when you get up, but happy birthday. He's now 13. He was in a basketball game on Friday night. he's doing pretty well. He takes after his mother when it comes to athletic skills. (laughs) And after the game, uh, one of the coaches was there who coaches my son. And he came up to me and he said, hey, dad, let me tell you something. Your son, he's really good, man. He's got some good skills. But he always plays facing the basket. He's one of the tallest kids out there. He's not comfortable with his back to the basket. He could take these little guys that are covering him. He could post them up, which means stand right under the basket, get the ball, make a little move, and take a little layup. But he wants to play outside. He wants to dribble between his legs. He wants to take the long shot. you got to get him to get comfortable with playing under the basket. I said, Coach, those are good words, man, good words. I said, the only problem with that is this. His hero... The hero that he models his game after is a guard that never puts his back to the basket. He's the greatest shooting guard in the NBA. He's the highest scorer in the NBA. Anybody know what his name is? No? I wish it was. Steph Curry, who plays for Golden State Warriors. I said, his hero is Steph Curry. He wants to be like Steph Curry. I don't have to tell my son, "Hey, hey, Brady, try to be like Steph Curry in your basketball game. He's already doing it. No one has to tell him. He admires Steph Curry's game so much, he wants to be like him. He, he says, well, Steph Curry never, never posts up. He just takes the guy and makes the move. See, his hero is somebody he wants to be like. That's what salvation is like. When you come to faith in Christ, no one should have to tell you, hey, try to be like Jesus. Of course, he's my hero. He laid down his life for me. You don't have to tell me to be like Jesus. He's the one that I model my life after. It's amazing how so often we can live a life that doesn't model the Savior who died on the cross for us. Jesus came to give us this positive life change of turning from the old destructive path and following the new. It's a wonderful process of life change because we want to be like him. In Acts 20, 21, it says this, testifying to both Jews and Greeks. This was Paul's ministry of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That when you come to faith in Christ, Jesus is now the person you want to be like. You take that person, Jesus, and what he's like, you bring it into your personal life, into your marriage, into your friendships, into the workplace, into every compartment of your life. Because he is your hero. We're to be like him every day. No one should have to tell us that. He's the person we model our lives after. Jesus said this. He he, he was great at asking questions, wasn't he? There's one question Jesus asked that was so powerful. He said, why do you call me Lord and don't do the things, what? That I say. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I say? Powerful question, Jesus. That, that convicts me. And, the, and by the way, conviction gets a bad rap in our culture too. You know, I hear people say, oh, man, I got that church guilt in my life. Conviction should be a wonderful motivation for change. You know, you've, if you have children, you know that as a parent, you would be irresponsible if you didn't highlight in love the things that your kids are doing irresponsibly. Yesterday, I was talking to someone about uh, how dangerous they, they, they bought a house with a pool. And I said to them, wow, you know, the one thing I'd be concerned about, you have little kids, is that your kid would wander out to the pool. And, the, and she said to me, we think about it all the time. We think about it all the time. It's on our hearts. We're so concerned about the dangers of that. We have to train our kid. In fact, we have our kid now in swimming lessons so that our kids will become great swimmers we signed up, the, our, one, one, our one child is one year old. He's already in the pool, learning how to swim at the age of one. It's a danger. It's a, it's a danger. It'd be irresponsible to allow a kid to be exposed to danger like that and not take steps to protect your children. The same is true of God when we come to faith in him. He gives us the plan to protect us from the dangers of destruction out there. Luke says this in chapter 5. Those who are well, Jesus said, have no need of a physician but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous to repentance but sinners. Makes sense, right? How many of you have gone to the doctor maybe for an annual checkup, maybe? But when you say, man, i got to get to the doctor. I'm feeling so great today. I'm feeling fantastic. i got to get to the doctor. Can I come in today? Of course not. A physician goes to people who are feeling sick. That was the ministry of Jesus. He came to call people to repentance. And yet we shy away from that word like it's something bad. Repentance is positive life change. Here's the other aspect of repentance. Repentance and relational restoration. That if we're doing something that hurts other people, we repent from that. As God is growing us up in sanctification and that relational forgiveness with Him, we need to grow up in our relationships with one another. Repent from things that are causing unnecessary offenses in the lives of people. See, Reuben had it down, man. We, We are experiencing the guilt for what we've done. Choices have consequences. Here, number two, it's this. Repentance recognizes the positive, edifying quality of Conviction. We think that it's wrong to be convicted. We think, oh, now don't give me a conviction. I don't want to hear it. I can't stand when the Bible convicts me. That's all part of the job of the Holy Spirit. We should rejoice in it. Just like the parent who lovingly corrects a child to stay away from the dangers of a deadly pool that can kill in silence, we're, we're, we're to love the changes that God brings into our lives, the conviction that he brings into our heart. See, uh, they knew it. We're, we're guilty. We are convicted. We're convicted of what we've done. We we've, we've, are, are just bearing the consequences of the decisions we have made. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, would come and convict the world of sin. I, I want to ask you today, are you in tune with the Holy Spirit in your life? There are times in my marriage I'm like, oh, wow, Lord, you're right. I shouldn't, oh, I shouldn't have reacted like that. I was wrong. Lost my cool. I should not have done that. I'm acting selfishly over here. I need to change. See, when God does it, it's positive life change. We're to welcome it. We're not to feel like, oh, I can't believe. We're talking about conviction. It's all about healthy life change. Here's point number three. True repentance involves heartfelt grief for one's actions. You see in the chapters here in 42 and 44, when you read it, the brothers feel guilty about what they've done. Grief over their sin. This is what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Uh, The day you came to faith in Christ, you probably remember feeling Convicted. Maybe a grief over your sin that, yeah, you know, I've disobeyed God. I need to have the same attitude towards sin that God has. We talked about the word confession a few months ago. The word confession in the Greek is homo logion. It means homo the same, logeon to say. To say the same thing about sin that God says. I hate my sin. God hates the sin, but he loves the what? He loves the sinner, Exactly. He loves the sinner. And when the Holy Spirit convicts us, he's protecting us. When I was in high school, I got a job at this factory. And this factory would make furniture, pieces of furniture, that uh, were made out of compressed wood, right? And so you, people would order a box, and they'd take that box, kind of like Ikea, you know, and you take it home and you assemble it. Now, when I was there at the factory, there was this new machine that came in. And what it did is it put a lining around the edge of the compressed wood. You know, if you want to know it's real wood or not, you look at the edging, and you can see all the little pieces of wood that are glued together in this compressed wood. Well, they had a machine that would wrap this tape around it so it looked like real wood. And I was assigned to work that machine with this other guy who I consider to be a know-it-all. This guy was older than me. He knew he had worked there longer than me. And I resented the fact that he was always telling me what to do. And the factory was so loud. There were all these saws going on, cutting wood. And I remember there were times when the machine would break down, and we'd have to go into the machine, shut it down, have all the saws, because there were little saws that would automatically just move forward and cut that tape. And I remember the machine, we thought it had broken down, and I thought we had stopped, and there was such a noisy Factory. I thought the machine had been shut down by my partner who was at the control end of the machine. And all of a sudden, I began to stick my hands into the machine to take out this wood that had been stuck in the machine. And he starts screaming at me. And I thought, here's this know-it-all telling me what to do. And I remember getting mad. I'm like, what are you talking about? What's your problem? Why are you yelling at me? He said, Mel, the blades are spinning. It will chop your hands off. And I realize, oh wow, this guy that I can't stand just saved my fingers. He just saved my fingers. And so often in our lives, we fight against the conviction of the Holy Spirit as if it's something bad. If it's something bad. But God is always working for our good. That's why we're to welcome the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We're not to fight against it We're not to rebel against God and say, I can't believe you're convicting me of this. John 16 says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. See, when the brothers stood before Joseph, they didn't realize it was Joseph. They felt this automatic conviction for what they had done. They had had turned against their brother. And the last thing we need to remind it of today is true repentance engages in God-empowered, genuine life change. When Joseph says, hey, Benjamin is going to be my slave, you guys go back to your dad, Judah speaks up. At the very end of chapter 44, if you have your Bibles, turn there. 32, Judah speaks up. This is the man who led the effort to kill Joseph but then decided to sell him into slavery. He says this to Joseph, not knowing it was the same brother he sold into slavery. For your servant, Judas said, that was referring to himself, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Verse 33, now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my lord and let the go boy go back with his brothers for how can i go back to my father if the boy is not with me i fear to see the evil that would find my father at that moment joseph knew that judah had repented and the brothers Judah was willing to stay as a slave to protect the life of this young boy, Benjamin, and the life of his father, that there had been true life change, heart change. He knew that these brothers of his felt the conviction of what they had done. You know, how can I go back? I became a pledge of safety for this boy. I've dedicated my life to protect this boy. I'll remain here instead of him. I'll remain here. And I want to tell you, repentance is all about a change in our lives, to be more and more like Christ. I believe repentance is all about this, recognizing the sin for what it is in our lives, knowing that God is our hero. No rationalizing it. No explaining it away. No excusing it anymore. Recognize sin for what it is in our lives. You know, God will convict you. I don't know what your struggle is. I know what mine are. God will convict you of that struggle. Be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and his conviction. Recognize sin for what it is. Expel any thought of rationalizing. Expel any thought of rationalizing. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal, and I I made a copy of this quote from the article says this, noted secular author Aram Bakshin Jr. Jr. wrote in the Wall Street Journal, One paradox of our time is that many of the same sociologists and psychologists who insist that we are not responsible for our own behavior and are adamant about holding us accountable for everyone else's, the sins of the child are blamed upon the parent. Those of the criminal are blamed on society, those of the protester upon the politician, and so on in an endless daisy chain of deferred guilt. While this phenomenon has been profitable for many publishers of pop psychiatry and the makers of couches, its impact on the rest of us has been less than edifying. What's he saying there? We like to blame others for our sin. We like to blame others. Push the blame on them. Not take responsibility for it. Rationalizing our sin. Expel any thought of rationalizing. Put it away. Realize we are responsible. I am responsible for my actions. Not going to blame people around me. Not going to blame society. Not going to blame the way that my parents raised me. Yes, all of those things have an impact on our lives. But ultimately, the whole concept of sin we're responsible. We can make a change. No more rationalizing. Here's the next thing. Pursue corrective behavior and thinking. What do I need to change? What's what's in my mind that needs to change? How can I renew my mind, my thinking? How can I do a metanoia, a change of my mind, which is the word repentance, changing the way I think for positive life change? What's the sin in your life today that God's convicting you of? Engage those that you may have wronged. If your sin has wronged others, engage them and tell them, I'm sorry. Two of the most difficult words in the English language, amen? I'm sorry. Here's three other very difficult words in the English language. I was wrong. I'm sorry I was wrong. Engage those you may have wronged and make it right. Here's the next thing. Nourish a heart that draws near to God. When you move away from a destructive action and you do a 180 and you start following God, you need to fill that vacuum with God. You need to fill Him into your life. Fill that vacuum with a positive, uh, renewing action in your life. What is it? What can you fill your life with that will help you overcome the sin that you've been involved in? What's the way that you can think differently? What's the action you can get involved in? Here's the next thing. Take the steps that are necessary to avoid sin. Take the steps that are necessary to avoid sin. Whatever those steps are, we need to make them. Because God wants us to repent. What's it all about? Positive life change to be like your hero, positive life change to make a greater impact in, in this world for Jesus Christ, to glorify Him. In your marriage, make the change what Jesus wants in your friendships, in your personal life, in the workplace. Make those changes for God. Be like the brothers who acknowledge their sin and change their lives. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray together. As your hearts are bowed today, my prayer would be you'd fall in love with the word repent. Jesus talked about it. The need for repentance To be like him. To be like the hero that we've dedicated our lives to. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, we would allow your word to sink into our hearts. Lord, when Joseph heard the words of Jacob, of Judah, that he was willing to stay in the place of his brother, he wept bitterly. He broke down and cried because he knew there'd been a change and that he was restored with his brothers. Lord, I pray, God, that we would realize the importance of repentance, the importance of being like you. Lord, help us to be the church you've called us to be. Help us to love one another like you've called us to love. Help us to live for you like you've called us to live. And may we give you all the praise and all the glory because you deserve it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's so all and sing song.